You're welcome to turn with me if you like in your Bibles, or you're welcome to just listen. That's up to you. I'll be giving the references and reading from the text. But if you turn to Luke chapter 4, the book of Luke chapter 4, I want to look at a couple of takeaways from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And he came to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority." In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. I'd like to bring out a couple of things from this section. First of all, a couple of brief notes. The section in verse 28 through 30, where all the people in the synagogue are filled with rage and they get up and they drive Jesus out of the city. They lead him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff and passing through their midst, he went his way. That phrase is put in there almost like an afterthought. You've got this entire mob of people take Jesus to the edge of the cliff and they are so enraged that they literally want to throw him off the cliff. And then we have this little just sentence. You could probably call it an understatement in, in importance, right? Passing through their midst, he went his way. Jesus was invincible. 
until it was the Father's time for him to die. Now, we know that Jesus, being God in the flesh, he even tells the disciples in the garden, I could call legions of angels to my aid, right? So he's always invincible. But the lesson for us is we are invincible too until God says it is our time. If it's not your time, you can walk through the mob. If it's not your time, it doesn't matter what you're being threatened with, what risks you are running. If you are following the Father's will, he is sovereign. He's in control. That's the example that Jesus sets for us. But there are four specific things that I'd like to bring out. Number one is the importance of preaching and not just actions. There's a popular saying that goes around in Christian communities that says, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. That is a very nice sounding saying. There's only one problem with it. It is completely not biblical. Because what does the Bible say? It is necessary to use words. That's the example that Jesus sets for us. So words are not a last resort if we fail to be nice enough to bring people to Christ. In fact, Jesus tells us in verse, uh, Luke 4, verse 43 and 44, Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Of all the things that Jesus could say about why he was sent to earth, that he would say, I was sent to preach. That's huge. If God is sovereign over salvation, then how come Jesus was sent to preach? Why didn't God just snap his fingers and save the people he wanted to save? Because God works through means. And one of the means that he has ordained is preaching. And it is so important that Jesus would say, that's why I was sent. I was sent to preach. So it is not biblical to say we preach as little as possible. We keep our our sermons as short as possible. We keep family worship as minimal as possible because we don't need to preach. We just need to live like Christians. Well, you know what? Living like Christians involves preaching. If we're not preaching the word and the truth of God, we're not living like Christians. We're not following the example of Christ. Preaching is important. However, not really however in, the, not however in contrast, not however in, in taking away from that, but if we go over to Matthew chapter 10, you can't go in either direction, right? Jesus, this is Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease, skipping down to verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so there's preaching again. And what's the next sentence? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. So is it enough to preach and not do? No. Neither one is an acceptable perspective as Christians. We're called both to show Christ in our actions, our love, our compassion, our generosity. Freely you receive, freely give. That is an enormous statement. Jesus is saying, you go love others, you go bless others like your Father has lavished himself on you. The more we understand of our Father's love for us, the more impossible that command becomes. The more all-encompassing that command becomes. We are called to live lives of total devotion to loving and blessing others because our Father has so 
infinitely poured out his grace and his love upon us. So it must be both preaching and acting, speaking and doing, talking the talk and walking the walk, both. Number three, the offense of faithful preaching. So if you're taking notes, one was the importance of preaching and not just actions. Number two is the importance of actions and not just preaching. But number three is the offense of faithful preaching. Jesus was on his way to a megachurch, you might say. All were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. He was, from a human perspective, he's doing good at this point. People like him. If he wants to start uh, First Baptist Galilee, you know, this is his chance to, to, to get, get people in, draw people in, build a booming church. Come on, Jesus, don't you want to minister to the seekers? They like you. Don't mess this up. But that's not Jesus' primary concern. Christ-like ministry proclaims God's word faithfully and applies it accurately, even if that makes the hearers angry. So in, in a couple sentences of scripture, we go from Jesus being the popular new rabbi to Jesus being the person that they wanted to throw off a cliff. And Jesus is not concerned about that. He's not walking on eggshells. He's not treading lightly to hopefully maintain a good reputation. Jesus is speaking prophetically what needs to be said. He's the, and he does this more than once. You see this even before the crucifixion. He literally gives them the ammunition they need to crucify him. He says... I don't remember the exact phrase right now, but he says the thing to which they respond, what more do we need? We don't need more evidence. We don't need more witnesses. Look, he just blasphemed God. Jesus gave them that because it was his time. It was the Father's will. He was that submitted to God's plan. So Jesus, while being full of compassion, while healing and blessing and loving those around him, nevertheless, does not curb the power of his preaching. He speaks the truth. He speaks in terms of the will of God. He speaks what the Father wants him to say, regardless of how that makes other people feel. So we are called to love others by being faithful to Christ, but to love Christ first. We don't live to please man. We live to please Jesus. So three is the offense of faithful preaching. At some point, your preaching should be unpopular. If your preaching offends no one, then your preaching is not Christ-like. Jesus told us that. He said that the servant is not above his master. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. So that doesn't mean we set out to offend people. That's not the goal. But we do set out to be faithful and we accept and realize we're in a war. That means we're going to take shots. That means that some people are not going to like when we come and proclaim the word of Christ faithfully. Number four, the authority of Christ. And we see this repeatedly in this chapter. We see his authority over the physical realm. At the bottom, Simon's mother-in-law suffering from a fever, and Jesus rebukes the fever. All it took was a word from Christ for her to be healed. That's authority. That is huge authority, amazing authority. Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. The demons, the demon-possessed are brought to him, and he rebukes the demons. And there's, there's no debate, there's no... There's no contest to see if these demons have to listen to Jesus. He speaks and they leave. He has authority over the physical realm, the spiritual realm, and 
the scriptural realm. Repeatedly, we're told that he teaches with authority. Verse, thir- uh, verse Chapter 4, verse 32, they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. And so I said repeatedly, that's the one that I know here. There's another one speaks with authority and not as the scribes, but I did not look that one up. But that one is, I believe, referring to Jesus and not one of the apostles. Regardless, the point is, Jesus' message is with authority. So, Jesus has authority over everything, physical, spiritual, and the authority to proclaim the truth authoritatively as the word of God in the flesh. What does that mean for us? What does the authority of Christ over all things mean for us? Two things, at least for now. Number one, the authority of Christ should make us humble. Because who has authority over the spiritual realm? Jesus does. Is it us in ourselves? No. Who has authority over the physical realm? Jesus does. Is it us in ourselves? No. So Christian courage is not bravado. It's not, I can take it. I I can do this. I'm strong enough. It's not believe in yourself. We see the seven sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19. They come to cast out a demon. And they even try to do it in the name of Christ. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 19. They try to cast out a demon in the name of Christ, but they're not walking in the power of Christ. Acts 19, 11. Um, just go to verse 13. Some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them. This is one guy. One man in whom is this evil spirit. Overpowered all seven of them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That is a huge exclamation point on how serious spiritual warfare is and how completely incompetent we are apart from the power of Christ. So the authority of Christ should make us humble because seven guys go in to cast out the demon from one guy without the power of Christ. The demon in the one man beats up all seven of them and sends them away. Jesus comes to the man who can tear apart handcuffs, the man in whom dwells a legion, for we are many, of demons, and speaks a word. And that's all it takes. That's the authority of Christ. So that's the other part of the equation. The authority of Christ, number one, makes us humble to realize that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We are absolutely helpless. Weak, frail, we lose. But in the power of Christ, this is part two, The authority of Jesus gives us boldness. The picture, one of the pictures I like to think of is, well, before I get to that, Psalm 1829. Here's a verse for the boldness that comes from knowing Christ. Psalm 1829. Starting in 28. For you light my lamp, Yahweh my God illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. David says, 
Because I am a servant of Yahweh, because God fights my battles for me, I can stand in front of a battlefield full of enemies and run upon them. I can charge them. Not just I can face them, not just I can hold my ground, I can run upon them. That is Christian courage. You see this in the movies. The movies love to bring out these scenes where the, the odds are impossible and the, the hero takes his stand anyway and he, he fights the fight anyway. Well, where is that rooted for us as Christians? That is rooted in trusting that we serve a God who he's the Lord of hosts. Nothing and no one can stand against him. Numbers are irrelevant. So picture this. I'll leave you with this mental picture. The council of the world is you are, you're, you're, a, you're a tiger, you're a lion, you're a mighty beast. You are, you can do it, you can handle it, you can take on the struggles of life in yourself. You look inside, you are strong, believe in yourself. That's not Christian counsel. Christian counsel is more like this. You are a mouse and you're going through an alley full of alley cats, hungry, vicious, rabid alley cats. And as you go through this alley, surrounded by the alley cats, you are riding on the shoulders of a lion. And that is Christian boldness and Christian humility. And that is how we are called to live.